And we are Hello, my name is Joshua Gilliland, and I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining us for our second Get Vocal broadcast, where we will talk about the third episode of Star Trek Lower Decks, Buffer Time. So let's, uh, this is a fun episode, and uh, Steve, it, our, our panelists tonight include Steve Chu, uh, Nari Ely, both work for the U.S. government, we'll just leave it there, and uh, Mark Lemley, who is a professor at Stanford, and yes, there will be a quiz, and uh, he's joining us for this uh, away mission, and like Nari, he wants to break the internet with his uh, Trek uniform. So let's get nerdy and geeky and talk about Star Josh, Trek. I just want to point out we have original series, next generation, and I think Steve, you're, you've got the DS9 style going there. We've got this pretty much covered. <laughs> we're, we're covering all the angles, right? And, and I'm going for the, you know, the t-shirt and the cap geeky tiki. Complete with a Mai Tai, so, because it was a long week. So let's talk about what we learned in this episode, and Steve, take us away. So we are now at episode three of the animated show, uh, Lower Decks. We're learning more about the crew, more about the characters, some storylines are playing out, and we're, um, uh, there are some surprises. So episode three is entitled Temporal Edict. Um, and it, be, it becomes known for the Boimler effect, as we learn later on. What we essentially have is Ensign Boimler, who is our, our go-to protagonist. Uh, he is sort of the by-the-book, work-hard, classic overachiever, and yet does not seem to be advancing nearly as far or as quickly as he wants, um, and he's part of this Lower Decks crew. We start off the episode with a performance in the equivalent of the Cerritos' 10 Forward, Boimler is playing some notes and people are kind of just staring blankly at him. So I'm not sure if they're really pleased or not. Uh, that is up until the point where Mariner uh, jumps on the stage and sort of steals the show, as she seems to do quite often, to the point where she's playing some heavy bass and it gets all the way up to the bridge where the captain is talking to a Klingon ship and the Klingon ship even asks, what is that noise? So we have some heavy noise disturbances, even in the 24th century. Uh, Nari, what do you think about that? Well, so this is not the first time that there's been a noise disturbance in the 24th century. Um, you would think that by the 24th century, they would you know, design ships that had soundproof bulkheads and things like that. Um, but as we saw in Voyager, not all ships um, have this uh, incorporated into their designs. It's ships that are meant to go on long voyages like the Enterprise, which are, I believe, Galaxy class, is that right? <laughs> yes. That's right, very uh, good. I think uh, the Cerritos looks like a Constitution class, is my guess at best. <laughs> um, and so probably isn't designed for those super extended deep space missions. And yeah, so it looks like the soundproofing is not up to snuff. Um, this gets into some interesting questions. Uh, the first is, you know, who is going to enforce a noise complaint. Um, you would assume that it would be something like, uh, I would hope that it would be something more like just a complaint that you take up with your officer and your chain of command. Um, but if this is more of like a property rights uh, noise disturbance where you have a property interest in your quarters and someone is uh, preventing you from having the quiet enjoyment of it, maybe you call security. <laughs> um, since this is though an internal organization, I would hope that you're not resorting to the kind of external force that you would if these if this is a dispute between property owners. <laughs> Anyone else want to chime in with that one? Doesn't Mariner have a First Amendment right to play her music? She's <laughs> <laughs> self-expression, freedom of speech, right? Um, although, you know, I'm not sure it had artistic value. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> she would disagree. I know. It, it kind of depends on how you feel about the bass, but... <laughs> um, but yeah, so as it turns, so it, assuming what's going on here, which is I think fair to assume, this is about the noise, the level of sound, the decibels, not what is being played, <laughs> um, then all you have is a noise ordinance. Now, so in First Amendment law, and I'm speaking kind of quickly and in generalities, but in First Amendment law, if what you're regulating is called a time, place, or manner. So you're not, um, you don't have to know like 
what someone is saying on their megaphone in order to know that they're breaking the law, right? Um, you don't have to know what someone has written on the sign to know that they're breaking the law. Um, then that's usually examined under a lower level of scrutiny because it, it's not content-based, right? You don't know, need to know what's being said to measure the decibels. <laughs> um, so since it's content neutral, it's usually treated as like a conduct restriction um, rather than a speech restriction. And you, you get into uh, uh, instead, oh, I believe it's substantial government interest and it has to be um, reasonably tailored to that. You know, so go ahead, Josh. If I might add, a Klingon author died because the captain <laughs> refused to own up to the fact that the base was rocking her ship and that's problematic. So I understand the need for a cover up because they're talking to the Klingons and they don't want to look bad. But as soon as you hear, you know, you know, engineer, today's the day you die, maybe, just maybe, you should step up at that point. So that way that engineer- That was definitely not. Captain Freeman though, I believe, yeah. who lied about <laughs> where the I, noise was coming from. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be the dissenter here. I, you know, there noise ordinances are all well and good, but we don't have to solve every problem with law. Um, you know, this is a ship with replicators. They could 3D print some earplugs and everybody. <laughs> Absolutely, right? It's not, the burden is not just on the person who, you know, doesn't a person have a right to play music if that's what uh, de-stresses them? So, you know, we got to protect everyone's rights here. Interesting though, this is a problem that many people could relate to today. I, I'm sure that everyone has had to deal with some noise disturbance. And if, oh, yes. <laughs> that makes, you know, a person will call, call the police, right? Um, I suppose on a starship, you know, it's a military type of organization and there are military police in the real military. So maybe they call Starfleet security. I don't know. You know, it, it would be an interesting question, right? I, I'm going to agree with Mark, especially though, that in, in particular in the American system of law, we do rely, um, it, it encourages um, conflict resolution that is not resorting to the legal right. system. There's a certain amount of self-help that is built into the system where we, the first thing you do is not file a lawsuit. The first thing you do is not call the police um, when you've got something as simple as a noise complaint. Um, so yeah, this is a situation where you would think for starters, you would just, you know, no one asked her, can you turn that Right, down? exactly. Right, the and captain could no just call down and say, can you guys keep it down a little bit, please? We're, we're negotiating with the Klingon Empire, you know? that we, we uh, the legal system encourages um, and relies on a certain amount of self-help is those kinds of uh, uh, informal resolutions of um, disputes between right holders can lead to net positive or win-win situations where the law may not lend itself to that. Did you have something to follow up there, Josh? No, but let's move forward. Absolutely. So about how there are some, the 24th century still has some of the same human problems we face today. Uh, we also see that there is a lot of politicking and jockeying for assignments, positions, um, recognition, because the Cerritos is, was on its way to um, Cardassia Prime for peace negotiations, and it was going to be a big deal. The captain was going to give a speech and be the center of attention. And then we find out that the location was moved to Vulcan, given to another ship. So the Cerritos is now given some other duty, you know, to provide gifts, something that's seen at least as being a lesser form of assignment. Uh, and the captain gripes about this, uh, some of the crew do as well. And, you know, we get a very sort of human type of dispute where, oh, we're not being respected enough. Um, so Mark, uh, the 24th century, it's, it's not uh, as perfect as we think it is, huh? Well, you know, one of the interesting things to me about the uh, about the show as it evolves over the last fifty years is it's um, a, our, our vision of utopia and how it sort how it squares with reality seems to change a little bit, right? I, you know, Star Trek is always an optimistic vision of the world, um, uh, but I think this whole show is about jockeying for position. Right. Uh, it's not jockeying for position among the officer corps, although here it is, uh, but it's jockeying for position in the lower ranks. Uh, but it is interesting to see that reflected with the captain, uh, right, who is clearly, um, uh, you know, uh, 
was married to the admiral, uh, right, uh, is uh, in a kind of mid-level captaincy position, right? Somebody who's, who's uh, you know, doing well at one level, but, uh, but could always be doing better. Mid Middle uh, management, huh? <laughs> right. Uh, and I think well, one of the things, just to preview uh, uh, episode four, we won't give any spoilers, but I think we're going to see that played up a lot in episode four. The question of sort of like where, what's my position and, and you know, where do I need to be uh, moving up in order to be happy? Hmm. Right, Josh, any thoughts? Is, 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 it, is it disappointing I, that, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry wanted the 23rd century humanity to be free of conflicts, essentially. Uh, he didn't want well, conflicts I, between officers. I want to add one thing to that, which is that I think there is at least one officer in the lower decks who is depicted as having, at least as far as I can tell, no upward ambition, which is Rutherford. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's happy where he is, right? Yeah, we saw this, I think, in episode two, right? Where his favorite thing is to get assigned to spend three straight days in the Jeffries tube. The Jeffries tube, absolutely. Yeah, doing the Which he work. would not get if he were promoted to like chief engineer or something. That's not what they do. Um, and I think that's a positive thing in the sense that, you know, there is a scarcity here for certain positions and more people uh, want them than there are captaincies or senior officer positions. But it's also depicted at least that in the 24th century, it's okay not to want to climb just for climbing right. itself, right? It, it, it's not, Rutherford isn't being pressured into thinking, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to make chief engineer someday? <laughs> um, it's okay to be happy with where you are. Any thoughts, Josh? You know, what makes people people is pretty universal. And if you look at the wants and needs of humanity from a thousand years ago versus today, there's still similarities. And sure, we might have better dental care and health care, but you know, the core elements of humanity is perpetual. So you're you're going to still have mother-daughter conflict. You know, like you're still gonna have those those qualities that make us human. While we might be more civilized, we might be more thoughtful, and we might still try to rise above those shortcomings and those challenges, you know, core elements of being people, you know, isn't going to change. So on that, I do think it's accurate. And I do think that's why the first two seasons of Next Generation suffered because Roddenberry, you know, shackled the writers from being able to be creative. It was after Roddenberry the show that they were able to open up and get more creative and really hit their stride in the third season and, and going forward. So I think that's, you know, people are people. Well, I would, oh, sorry, no, Mark, no, go ahead. ahead. I just wanted to sort of uh, add to that, that I think, um, you know, one thing that maybe, uh, I, I, I'm, I don't know enough specifically about Roddenberry to say if this is sort of a betrayal of his view, but, um, you know, Star Trek has at its core in a lot of ways, sort of in a very, you know, despite the fact that people seem to exist in a pretty uh, harmonious society, it's, it's in Next Generation in particular, moving forward, it is contrasted right with the Borg. Um, there are numerous episodes where the rights of the individual are in conflict with the rights of a particular society that they've run into and things like that. And if you to if you prize individuality, if you if people are supposed to be different, that's part of the re reason it's a federation, right? It's a, it's very divergent societies and species all living together. Um, then there's there's gonna be certain areas of friction. I mean, uh, the beauty of Star Trek is that the belief that we can overcome those and live together despite those, not that we're all the same and there would never be any tension whatsoever. I, I was I was told the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> or the one. I will accept that as an axiom. One thing I do just want to note about this, but... Josh, Josh may well be right that, you know, human nature, um, uh, Klingon nature, uh, uh, the nature of life is as one of jockeying for position and for competition. But you do also have to wonder how much of that is a function of scarcity. Right. And, you know, yeah. we, we've always had sort of economic scarcity. Maybe we create it for ourselves. Uh, maybe it's forced upon us. But an I think one of the interesting things Star Trek does is it actually tests the question of, right, 
what is it that's uh, what is it about that that's irreducible human nature, and what is it about that that's driven uh, by sort of relative uh, lack and scarcity and the need to be sort of better off um, uh, in a world where you can't have everything? Uh, well, again, you still have people doing talent shows, people still wanting to do creative artistic expression, which is at our core, cave paintings. So we still have that quality. Um, I think the talent shows appear to be competitive, which is nice. There's never a trophy <laughs> or a ribbon that's given out at the end of it. Or, or, it's, uh, or it's group therapy with if your song is entitled Requiem for a what happened Yeah, in, that was adorable. <laughs> what happened in Modesto? <laughs> you know, a, a parting thought on this, and these are all good points, but, um, you know, Star Trek has always done very well with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, the key Shakespearean themes is that human nature does not change, you know, that um, history will repeat itself even in the 24th century. Uh, and, you know, to Nari's point that maybe Rutherford is the one that has it all figured out. He doesn't care about advancing. He's just happy where he is. There have been philosophers, you know, long, for a long time saying that, um, you know, you just need to do what you do and do it well. Um, I think that was Aristotle. But, you know, what we have here then is there was a scene in Generations um, where that was repeated. When Kirk meets Picard, he asks, you know, are you near, close to retirement? No. Okay, don't. Don't let them promote you. Don't let them move you up. Don't let them do anything that'll take you out of that chair because while you're in that chair, you can make a difference. So maybe you should just get somewhere where you're happy and not not always be looking uh, upstairs, right? So. Yeah, which which invokes the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Right. And so, yeah, there, there are elements there of live a good life and be happy. So if that's climbing through Jeffrey's tubes, that might be happy <laughs> when- I feel like we're gonna do this all again next week when we get to- yeah, well, It might happen- Oh, are we? Oh, okay. <laughs> because he's 23 or whatever the age is. When he's 30, he might have very different interests. So because people do grow and evolve. So there's, there are those factors at play, but let's, let's moving on to other big issues. The next, um, one of the next things that, that jump out in the episode is when the lower decks crew is hanging out, doing some work, apparently they're doing a force field test and, and some Boimler is setting this up along with some assistance and Mariner, has a phaser ready to go. And then she points it, fires it away. And she says, don't worry, it's set on stun, right? And then, oh, well, now it is. Uh, yeah. You know, that, I mean, I think most people watching this would say there are some problems. That, this is probably not the way that should have gone down. Um, Josh Nari, what do you guys think? This is like testing a bulletproof vest by wearing it and getting shot. It's idiotic. That's not what you do to make sure that the I'm pretty sure that's happened on the internet before. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> uh, I remember seeing a video of it in high school. And it's just like, no, 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 no. So you don't do man overboard drills with live human beings. There's a reason why you have a, a dummy called Oscar that you for practicing man overboard drills because the flag you hoist when you do an MOB drill is Oscar. Thus, we named the dummy Oscar. You don't put a live person in the water. So testing the force field with a phaser is just a bad test right off the gate. And then you throw Mariner's uh, negligence and not verifying the phaser set to stun. So there's all kinds of bad associated with a scene for comic relief. And let's admit it was enjoyable. So I wanna, I wanna build on that with just a couple things. The first is that if we weren't in the military, I think, you know, since nobody got hurt, this would probably still be negligent discharge of a firearm, right? This would be similar to you're playing around with your buddies and you think that the, the gun is clear, but there's actually a bullet in the chamber. It would probably still be negligent discharge, <laughs> possibly reckless endangerment. Um, since we are in the military, just in case anyone's curious about how that affects things. So um, how this is treated is likely going to depend, depend a little bit on 
who the soldiers are in question and also, you know, what unit they belong to, if they're kind of an elite group like SEALs or special forces, or if they're just your average grunt in the military. Um, if you're if they're your average grunt, which I would hazard a guess that lower decks count as, um, uh, the military is likely to look at their commanding officers and whoever was in charge of them during this time to determine if there was actually some kind of negligence uh, at that level, right? Like who was in charge of the safety briefing <laughs> before doing this? Um, I actually kind of doubt it was one of them, especially Mariner. <laughs> um, and if somebody failed to mention then, because there was supposed to be a safety briefing that before you do a force field strength test, you check every time that your phaser is set to stun, um, then it was someone else's fault. But it seems likely that in fact it was Mariner. I'll, I'll, just, I'll make an even more radical suggestion. Maybe it would be a good idea that phasers are always set to stun by default while you're on the ship. That the number of circumstances where you actually need killing uh, uh, and, and, and can't then set your phaser to kill uh, seems to me sufficiently low that this ought to be the way to go. I This was... Um, you know, Star, Star Trek in general has a pretty decent uh, modern approach to tort law and safety. Uh, this was a sort of Star Wars level safety uh, and tort law move, right? Let's build a giant thin ramp with no railings and have everyone walk out over it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm seeing a lot of uh, potential OSHA issues, a lot of safety protocol breaches. Um, and, you know, even within the Star Trek world, in Star Trek Six, they sort of introduced this idea that if you fire a phaser on a ship, it sets off the alarm. Uh, that doesn't happen here, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I think uh, I think Mark's onto something there. Setting everything to stun by default would seem to make some sense. Well, so talking about, I mean, the, the Lower Decks crew is cutting corners, and speaking of cutting corners, we now introduce this idea of buffer time or creative estimating where Mariner introduces people, well, you know, it's already been going on, but, you know, this goes all the way back to, um, you know, Scotty from the original series, um, maintaining his reputation as a miracle worker by always multiplying the actual time it would take him to finish an assignment. And then he comes up with different, you know, multiple factors depending on the difficulty of the assignment, but that way he never gets overworked and maintains some control over his work schedule. And the Lower Decks crew appears to thrive on this. And we later learned that almost the entire ship apparently uh, thrives on some buffer time. And then the captain decides, she learns about it and decides to crack down. Uh, Mark, is that a good idea? What do you think here? Well, it doesn't play out well here. And I think this is, this to me is the heart of this episode, right? Um, uh, it, the idea, um, and, and you can think of it as a kind of captain versus crew, right? Um, uh, we don't want the captain to be too strict. We want to slack off. But I actually think it's more than that. Uh, and this is, at heart, I think, a legal problem. We have a lot of rules in society. Um, and we have so many rules uh, that if we take seriously all of them and try to apply all of them faithfully in all circumstances, uh, we're going to end up uh, like the crew. Uh, in this episode, right? Going insane, trying to get things done. Uh, we're going to be less productive. We're certainly going to be less happy um, than if we, you know, moderate or temper that those rules uh, with standards, right? Temper that law with equity. Uh, and this has been a classic problem, I think, in law, right? Um, you, you want people to know what the law is. You want to tell them what the law is so they can understand it, so they can obey it. But you don't always want them to obey it. Right. Um, people speed. Uh, people cut corners when they're walking at a crosswalk. Uh, people check Instagram when they're at work. Uh, right. All of these are things that you should theoretically not do, uh, but which it turns out are sort of part of what make it uh, sort of livable to have all of these rules. Uh, and so law has always struggled with uh, to what extent do we take a bright line rule approach, to what extent do we temper that with justice? Yeah, you were only going one mile over the speed limit. Yeah, you were going 10 miles over the speed limit, but you were trying to get your uh, uh, pregnant wife to the hospital so she could deliver her baby. Um, one of the interesting things I think about this problem, right, that buffer time is a nice uh, uh, metaphor for, uh, is uh, artificial intelligence. So it turns out the hardest thing to figure out about programming rules into robots and AI um, is tempering them with common sense. 
Uh, and so uh, we uh, AI has actually has its own very literal uh, uh, problem with buffer time right now. Self-driving trucks, uh, because they are sub, we are treating the the truck as a as the driver, uh, are subject to uh, brake rules. Uh, so self-driving trucks crossing the country have to stop and pull over for substantial periods of time so they can rest. Uh, because we have a rule that says if you are a driver, you must rest every so often. Uh, otherwise, it would be unsafe. The truck is a driver, therefore the truck must rest. Of course, that makes no sense. Uh, but if you take a strict application of the rules, uh, what happens is exactly what Narius suggested. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for, the, for the AI wanting to rest, just as a random counter argument, trying to avoid a Skynet situation, Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe, maybe the, the robot taking a break, getting a little me time. Maybe that's that's okay. They're not going to feel like, that it would avoid Skynet to give downtime to the AI to ponder its existence. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, I got maybe a, I Skynet. Skynet was the first thing that popped into my head too. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it needs downtime. Maybe it wants to read. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe it likes art. You don't. It's just they're they're. It's like it's Boimler is Skynet in this metaphor, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> or, yeah. Or, or you know, Skynet has been introduced in Star Trek uh, through Discovery, right? In a way, Control could be Skynet. Uh, also, the ultimate computer in the original series, where yeah, yeah uh, because you end up well, with that's a right. They had like a virtual, a computer captain, right? That they were they trying did. to test. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Captain Dunzel afterwards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but what you would expect of a of a computer captain, right, is here are the rules. I apply the rules, right. And what you'd get, I think, is exactly what this episode suggests, uh, which is uh, without buffer time, uh, even if AIs can do it, uh, uh, humans are not going to be able to do it or do it very well. So Mark, Mark, is the takeaway that Starfleet needs to loosen up a little bit? <laughs> I, I think the takeaway is Starfleet and law, right, always has to sort of temper its rules with some justice, have to decide, you know what, let's apply this rule, but let's overlook this rule in this circumstance. And I think, Star, I think Starfleet actually is pretty good about that. Uh, if we think about the number of times that Kirk, uh, to say nothing of everyone else, uh, perhaps skirted a few rules. Um, Quite a few, I, I yeah. Even, I can even think of a time when they didn't faithfully follow the prime directive. <laughs> oh, <laughs> even one time, really. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I just want to add, though, that there's like one aspect to this that everyone in this episode seems to ignore, which is at the beginning... Um, the Lower Decks crew mentions the existence of buffer time is premised on the fact that the senior officers have no clue how long it actually takes to complete something. So the lack of buffer time may be partly driven by all the things that Mark is saying, which is that a certain amount of autonomy and standards is inherent to existing as a human, even in a work environment. It could also be at least exacerbated by the fact that the senior officers continue to not know how much time it takes and are allotting too little time now for every task. But, but I, right. Although, I, I mean, I think one thing to note about the sort of modern world is as we as we increase having or we're increasingly subject to surveillance, uh, yes. it is easier and easier to sort of watch what your workers are doing every second on the clock. I think truck drivers are already subject to this. Right. Amazon employees are already subject to this. Um, and I think it's problematic, not just because. Um, uh, you know, it's not just a question of did we misestimate how much time it will take you to do this, right? A certain amount of flexibility in that time and downtime has to be built into the way we operate, uh, or or we're not going to do a very good job. And that's yeah. I, I, that may raise the Title Seven issue, Nari. Which you, yeah, is this a hostile work environment, perhaps? Well, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, says yes. Nari, what, what say you? <laughs> uh, I, I'd like Josh to take this away. I just wanted to open it with typically Title VII, when we're talking about hostile work environment, we're usually talking about some form of harassment based on uh, protected class, like race, sex, or something like that. But Josh, can it apply to just an environment that, you know, kind of sucks? If somebody's abusive, yeah. So you don't get, you don't have the right to bully people. 
So when you say, hey, that 30-minute project needs to be done in 10, when people can't sleep, when people aren't getting enough rest, when productivity is taking a nosedive because the helmsman is too exhausted to read the panel on what he needs to do to control the ship, or the weapons officer doesn't know how to raise shields because he's too exhausted to do so, you've created a hostile work environment because people can't function. I'm not, I'm, and, not sure, I'm not sure I buy that it is a hostile work environment if it's not done on the basis of some form of discrimination. I do think we have a wage and hour law problem and we happen to have yeah. a, a, a labor and employment law specialist here. Is this a, don't, don't, aren't I entitled to breaks, Nari? So, there would be a pretty serious labor law or employment law issue here, um, especially also, I assume there, it looks like they're also like terribly violating any overtime laws here. <laughs> um, it doesn't seem like they're getting a lot of sleep, which means that they're working well past the nine to five. <laughs> um, I do note though, that as far as I know, and Steve or Josh or Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, as far as I know, the FLSA or similar laws do not apply to the military. <laughs> Is that right? I think that is generally correct. It is different. Uh, civil service employees have some rights. Um, they are vested with certain rights when they transition and retire from active duty military to become civilian contractors or civil service, you know, full time, not through a contract. Um, military is a different ballgame, though. You know, the military is allowed to drive people pretty hard and they can create justifications for it, you know, wartime or necessity. So I think that the captain, if we were playing, you know, sort of arguing the other side, defending the captain, um, we would say, look, this is a necessity. She is just, the crew has just been smacked down, had a boutique assignment taken away from them because everyone knows they're the slackers of the fleet. They need to get back up there and this is how to do it. They gotta be efficient. Um, but, you know, these are interesting points, which is that brutal efficiency seems to remove the humanity. So, you know, if, if, when you remove when you remove that, when you just enforce brutal efficiency, don't we all just kind of become the Borg? <laughs> yes. There's a um, there's a great uh, uh, reprise of this around the end of the episode. I don't know if we want to go out of chronological order, right? Um, where Mariner decides not to report ransom for. So we'll, we'll hold that thought. Um, absolutely, and uh, as Marcus pointed out, this is uh, the heart of the episode, um, and with a great payoff. So moving the story forward a little bit, what we get now is this away mission to conduct the gift gi giving uh, that they, the crew to which the crew has been assigned. Uh, Commander Jack Ransom, the dashing, arrogant first officer is in charge. Mariner is on this mission for some reason. And Ransom points out immediately, hey, you need to have uh, your sleeves rolled up. That's, that's violating sort of uniform code here. Um, so you, you need to get with the program. They get down to the planet, perhaps as a result of the, you know, the hard driving by the captain. Everyone's tired. They make a mistake. They give the wrong gift. The crew that is down there, the away team gets imprisoned, and it becomes uh, resolved, or at least it looks like it's going to get resolved by a form of trial by combat. Trial by combat it has a long history in Star Trek, and we, we've seen this. I'll comment on this a little bit, and I'd love everyone to kind of chime in here, but we, we go all the way back just within Star Trek to the original series, the episode Arena, where Kirk fights the Gorn, uh, the episode The Omega Glory, where Kirk fights Starfleet Captain Gone Rogue, Ron Tracy, and in that episode, they're being held by natives, and Kirk justifies it by saying, well, in your belief system, isn't it written that good will always triumph over evil? And they say, well, yes. Okay, well, then let us fight, and whoever wins has to be right. And they say, oh, yeah, make, makes sense. You know, if only it were that easy, right? Uh, might makes right, or however you want to put it, I suppose. And then we have roots in, you know, real-world uh, law, you know, historical roots for trial by combat go back to Germanic law, the Roman Empire, Vikings. Often when there is a dispute with not a lot of evidence, uh, people just feel good about, or in the past have felt good about resolving things by by combat. And then we have, you know, dueling with pistols and swords. And, you know, it's a judicially sanctioned duel, essentially, made famous more recently by the uh, show Game of Thrones, you know, on HBO. Um, but what do you guys think here? Trial by combat, you know, brutal, legal, a good idea? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
don't <laughs> drop a crystal on a bunch of people to kill them either. It's like, no, no. Did Josh... Josh, let me pose this question to you. Wouldn't it be easier if discovery disputes and civil cases were just resolved by combat? We are not animals. We have <laughs> reason. We have crawled out of the oceans. We have built society. We do not attack each other like animals. Our opposable thumbs and ability to think give us the ability to resolve problems without violence. Moreover, yeah. A trial is the crucible in which, you know, we burn and we're supposed to find the truth. Beating the crap out of each other doesn't do that. So, no, no, no. So, I, 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 I just want to note two things. Um, it is cheaper. Uh, as someone who investigates cases, it's quicker and cheaper, for sure, uh, than an extended discovery process. Uh, it might also actually be legal. Uh, so it turns out that, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> that uh, you, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, trial by combat had never been abolished in English law. And there is, as far as I know, no formal abolition of it in the United States. Yes, it remained part of the common law. And as any faithful listeners of the Legal Leaks will know, if something is part of our common law, it is the law unless it is overridden by a statute. There's a guy <laughs> earlier this year who requested trial by combat uh, against his ex-wife in a custody dispute over the kids. And what happened? I don't believe it was granted. <laughs> right, she, right, she dragged him out and, you know, one person, two people entered, one person left, you know, there you go. <laughs> no, we, no bust a deal, face the wheel. Like that's not how we roll and no, this is uh, Josh. Okay, you mentioned you mentioned rule. How about a death race? No, <laughs> no. While while entertaining, and part of me is intrigued to see the vehicles. No, no. We we and again, I loved Running Man. It was a fantastic Arnold Schwarzenegger film. <laughs> you know, I do recall. This reminds me that uh, years ago I saw a discovery order. I think it was a state court judge. I can't remember what state it was, but. The court, the judge spent a lot of time just um, uh, lamenting the fact that the two attorneys before him could not get a, get along about every uh, on anything. They were literally fighting over everything, and so he ordered them to resolve a discovery dispute through rock paper scissors. And he said, "Meet at the courthouse, do rock paper scissors, and the winner wins the dispute." And the attorneys were actually interviewed, and they said, oh, I, I've almost forgotten the rules of rock, paper, scissors. Oh, wh what time are we going to do this? What step are we going to be? Like, they just could not agree on anything. But uh, I think this kind of harkens back to um, Mark and Nari's point earlier that our legal system is set up to envision the idea or, you know, to sort of realize the idea that it's a last resort in many ways. People should be able to work out many of their differences short of filing a lawsuit, short of trial. Um but as we can see with this example of trial by combat, you know, maybe a little, uh, a little violence may be necessary. I don't know, at least in well, the society. Well, I don't mind a little cowboy diplomacy to solve problems, to invoke reunification. I do have a problem with just meeting at noon with pistols. Like we got rid of that. We banned it in the military. We made laws about it because we got tired of members of Congress trying to shoot at each other prior to the Civil War. Uh, so, no, like this is not something that we should encourage because good doesn't necessarily win and might does not make right. I just want to, yeah. From what Josh has said, I would like to put in a little asterisk for all the people listening that us joking about trial by combat and how it might still exist in our common law is not an endorsement or an encouragement <laughs> to engage these are not do not, do not practice <laughs> trial by combat <laughs> yeah do, do not engage in trial by combat please <laughs> unless so ordered by a court <laughs> or if it's on a video game perhaps or yeah. something like that. Yes, yes. so rpg yeah but not in real life this episode also has a kind of meta trial by combat Right, because uh, Mariner and Ransom fight over um, yes. uh, who gets to do the combat in the trial. Very good, very good. So, and I think this dovetails pretty well into a discipline topic uh, that we want to cover as far as the timeline goes directly after this. 
But um, I just wanted to point out here, so like this scene where they're, 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 I think they're technically prisoners of war at this point, and they're wrestling with each other over this sword, and of course Ransom stabs Mariner in the foot in order to finally resolve the question of who gets to do the trial by combat. Um, there's a couple problems here. The first is actually Mariner's has some pretty serious insubordination. Um, and in the mil within the military, the chain of command matters a lot, and it matters in, including when you are a prisoner of war. Um, if you are in a prison camp as a prisoner of war with a superior officer, you follow that superior officer's orders. Um, and that maintenance of chain of command is very important for maintaining morale and discipline when you are in a prisoner of war circumstance. She is clearly in the wrong when she refuses to accede to her superior officer who, who says he will take the trial by combat. Now, but does she deserve, does she deserve to be stabbed though, Nari? Does she deserve? Well, deserve is a different question. <laughs> is it justified? <laughs> um, no. So the fact that she is being insubordinate does not authorize her superior officer to assault her. <laughs> um, and this, you know, is, is, this is assaulting a fellow officer. Um, that would be a pretty serious offense. Um, if it were reported, it would be hard to imagine that it would not be a court-martial, especially because it is not depicted in the show as, like, little scratch it's depicted in the show as like oh god god how could you do no, that? would we call these offsetting penalties right uh, right yeah yeah he violates they, the rules and should be court-martialed he violates the rules and should be court-martialed no harm no yeah. some harm the penalties cancel out yeah no harm no fun. well yeah. they do not appear to report each other so that's the thing is that like if this had gotten reported, no, none of that would fly. But, to, um, but and, at the end of the incident, it doesn't seem like either of them report each other. And defending Ransom. For that, for that. Right, yeah, at least not for that, right. Um, you know, defending Ransom for a moment, uh, you know, hey, my client, um, the Honorable Commander Ransom, is always care caring about his entire team. He wants to be the one to take the fall if there is going to be one to take. And his stabbing of Ensign Mariner actually was intended to protect her so that she didn't have to enter the ring for the combat. And in fact, it succeeded. She did not have to enter the ring for the combat. Oh, totally. And this might highlight the fact that, you know, what is what, our, our legal rules and rule of law and everything, all of that is important, but it doesn't necessarily always encapsulate all the dimensions of how we feel about what is morally right. And in this scenario, the right thing to do from Ransom's perspective might be to break the rules, which is, uh, you know, I'm going to hurt you, which is wrong. But to save your life, um, potentially sacrificing my own at that moment in time, it does. We do not think he is going to win. <laughs> we think he is going to get flattened. Um, in which case, it is a heroic thing to do, and it might have been the right thing to do from his perspective. So this is what's great about Star Trek. You know, what it's not easy to say what's right. We live in that gray area. You know, monster is not always a monster. Uh, in fact, uh, Vindor, who is this hulking, you know, huge creature that. Uh, appears very intimidating, actually ends up being very well-read, articulate, very intelligent, proposes a reform to their system. How about a trial with a judge? Uh, the writers of Star Trek Lower Decks continually, you know, keep us on our toes or off balance. You know, they like to challenge a lot of uh, stereotypes, a lot of assumptions, and I, I think that's great. So we're back to the idea, once again, the theme running throughout the episode of cutting corners, is that a good thing? So the crew survives, they win this trial by combat, they're back on the ship, we get a conversation now between Mariner and Ransom, and Ransom says, okay, can you give me a heads up before you report me? Uh, and Mariner, you know, makes an interesting decision here. Mark, you had alluded to this earlier. Um, so what, what do you think about this? The, the guy who seems to follow rules or at least respect them now suddenly, um, is, he, is he looking for, for, uh, for some cutting of corners here? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think, I think Ransom really thought he was going to be reported. Uh, he expected it because that's the rule. That's that's the way things are done. Um, but this, I think we see the application of buffer time, right? Not just in terms of slack in the system and time off, but in the idea of do equity and not just do law, right? Uh, that, uh, that no purpose would be served uh, by getting you court-martialed for doing something which even if you shouldn't have done it, got us out of here at the end of the day. Uh, and so this is, I think, Mariner being perfectly consistent, right? Which it, with the idea of buffer time, right? That you know we need to, we're going to do the right thing, not the uh, not the thing that the rules require. And then, of course, so we, and so I was going to say we're kind of back to uh, Nari's idea, or I should, you know, both of you had said the offsetting penalties, right? 
Uh, Mariner could report, <laughs> Ransom could report Mariner. They decide not to. They seem to be square, seem to be equal. And yet Ransom turns around and now cites Mariner for the, um, for the uniform, the dress code violation. Have we learned? Which I just want to point out, she gets sent to the brig for that? Like, this seems My, like a wildly disproportionate. So that, that was a good, that, a good catch. My interpretation was it wasn't going to be a big deal. She was going to be written up. But then she just sort of freaks out, you know, physically lashing out. So she has to be restrained. And she elevates it herself because she's resisting the discipline. Um, That's a very good take answer. on it. I'd be I, I, I totally wrong. You know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Ransom really does have it in for her. Um, but uh, any thoughts? You know, his, his oh, just that it might have actually been a reward, since as she points out, as she's being dragged away, the brig is her favorite place. That's right. She loves the brig. That's right. <laughs> we are dealing with a very different person here in Ensign Mariner. It's all about buffer time. No deadlines in the brig. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. You're right. It's all buffer time there, you know, right? So that we, we end up closing the episode now with this idea of the Boimler effect. The captain calls in Ensign Boimler and says, all right. Uh, it's only after she agrees to allow some cutting of corners, some building in black time, uh, buffer time, that the crew recovers, is able to repel invaders, uh, bo a boarding party from the crew. They take over control of the ship, and the captain acknowledges, okay, maybe I need to you know, lighten up, loosen up, uh, choose your term. And she says, for here, you know, from henceforth, this shall be known as the Boimler effect. And we get this beautiful plaque, uh, and... You know, in a twist of irony, then, the crew member who appears to most care about following the rules is now known for not following the rules. Uh, irony. I, you know, life and Star Trek are not without irony. But uh, any thoughts here, guys? Well, it's, I mean, <clears throat> I, you know, irony is this show is all about irony, right? It's the, uh, right, uh, Mariner lets Ransom off for the big event and then gets uh, gets punished for the little event, right? The... Um, uh, the clueless buffoon uh, elbows his way into the fight and then ultimately ends up winning. The guy who looks like a giant meathead uh, turns out to be the legal scholar of the of the system. <laughs> of the one, right? Um, uh, so yeah, I, mean, I think this is of a piece of that, and it's a great uh, it's a great way to sort of tie this up and end it, um, right? That uh, in part because well, now we have a rule that says don't follow rules, right? Um, and I do want to highlight the other big aspect of this show, which, of course, is throwing in red meat for all the people like us who understand all the references. And the greatest crewman of all time statue is for Miles Edward O'Brien. <laughs> right. Miles Edward O'Brien. <laughs> Chief O'Brien. Um, and since we still have a, a few minutes, I just wanted to make sure that I got in my two cents. That that is absolutely right. So I think... For one, it's crewmen, right? So I think we're not talking about the senior officers. And there are actually very few enlisted Starfleet officers that feature as major characters throughout the show. Um, in fact, someone here can correct me if I'm wrong, but he may be one of the only ones that features as a major character, especially as a mainstay, a main cast member in DS9 and a recurring character in Enterprise. Um, and I, I think also chief engineers are usually officers, and he is in, he's just an enlisted... Lieutenant <laughs> Commander like Montgomery Scott. Yeah. And, exactly. and he became Captain Scott, um, too, by the time he was you know, found in the 24th century yes. in the um, Dyson sphere. But yes. Um, whereas uh, uh, O'Brien is always happy to stay as a non-commissioned officer, joking, for example, that it means he gets to get out of all the uh, <clears throat> state dinners and meeting the <laughs> diplomats. Is he um, kind of like Rutherford, just happy where he is? Yeah. I think he's exactly Although, like to Rutherford. to be fair, we should make the case. That the, it's possible that the greatest crewman uh, in Star Trek was not Miles O'Brien. It was Jeffries, the inventor of the Jeffries too. Matt, Jeff Matt yeah, Jeffries, <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and we, so it, it, just to close off then um, with another sort of Easter egg, but we get this uh, last reference, the great birds of the galaxy. And most Trek fans know that that is a reference uh, to Gene Roddenberry, the creator, because he was often called the great bird of the galaxy. So episode three is in the can. A lot of fun, a lot of irony. It looks like the theme on this one was irony and cutting corners. Uh, it'd be, it will be very interesting where this goes next. Uh, parting thoughts, anybody? I, I don't think it's necessarily cutting corners. 
because if you're letting people who know the job they need to do actually figure out the workflow necessary to do their job, that's just effective as opposed to Soviet-style mandating of thou shall be done in X amount of time, that's, you can't just mandate that. You can't do a great leap forward and just tell people to go make steel and they're going to go melt down their uh, pots and pans so they're suddenly steel to be made. This is letting people do their job and do it right, which is a good Silicon Valley mindset that many companies have had. So I, I don't see it as being bad if you're increasing productivity by people letting, let, letting people do their job the way they see fit and it's done effectively. Yeah. It raises also an interesting question that if you discover, for example, because everyone starts working remotely, <laughs> that um, there's actually a lot more downtime than you thought in your average employee's day uh, does that really matter uh, if they were getting the job done that you expected them to do or perhaps even beating your expectations? Is it is it a problem? Is it unethical? Does that time belong to the employer? <laughs> it's a very interesting you know, question. Not everyone works on an assembly line, you know, for Henry Ford. So if they're able to work remotely and get something done in five hours and they thought it was going to take eight, good for them. You know, that, that could then turn into, is that free time that they now have or do they do more? So again, those are discussions that companies should have. But if you're increasing productivity, why ruin it? So that would be my two cents. Uh, if, if you have a good crew that is getting the job done and doing it well, then maybe you should trust them mm -hmm. instead of all these rules, perhaps. Um, any other parting thoughts? Yeah. So I'll turn it back to you, Josh. Thank you all for tuning in this evening, Steve. And uh, thank you for taking the laboring oar on the outline. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us uh, for you know, the second outing. And uh, Nari, I know it's on the East Coast for you. So thank you for being up late on Friday to uh, discuss Star Trek. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about the uh, vessel. And uh, if you enjoy Star Wars, we will have multiple panels this weekend uh, for Force Fest on Get Vocal, including uh, The Empire Strikes Back, which uh, Nari, Steve, uh, Stephen Tullerfield, and Bethany Bangford are on. And on Sunday, uh, we will also have one on The Mandalorian, This is the Law. Uh, moderated by me, uh, along with Megan Hitchcock, Thomas Harper, and uh, Gabby Martin. And we're going to have a great time uh, this weekend. And there's also a lot of cool panels. So be sure to check those out, uh, either live or recorded. And until then, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in and stay safe. <laughs>